Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 8, A Bottle of Sherry. I can only imagine the countless times during all the wars we know of where a group of men got together and purposefully drank themselves into oblivion. I also imagine it was their attempt at dealing with the fear of being alone, a chance to experience comradeship, a bitch session about their superiors, or just taking a moment to forget their current lives. And during some of those drunken bouts, there was probably a moment, not that most would remember, when one of the group offered up the notion that they should do this again. They should form a club. Literally, a reason to get together and to be together. Somehow, with camaraderie, the deep dark fear that they all would not survive this current conflict would be pushed just out of reach of remembering. But I also imagine, and history seems to back this up, that a very large percentage of these pledges, almost all in fact, never came to fruition. Most are forgotten, or the simple task of staying alive in a time of war devours most everyone's time or concentration. But this was not to be with the guinea pig club. These were the men from Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain. As citizens of a peace-loving people, they felt betrayed by their cousins in Germany that declared war on them for no justifiable reason and desired to conquer them and all they possessed. And now they were supposed to hide themselves and their disfigured bodies away from society. These men were no more likely to acquiesce to that than to giving in to Hitler. The burned and injured men who came to War Three quickly understood the lack of established procedures in dealing with large-scale burns, their large-scale burns, and that Mackendoe was doing unprecedented work in trying to help them. He was feeling his way. But the shock of their current predicament that summer and fall of 1940 kept them off balance only for a short while. By Christmas of 1940, some of the pilots started referring to themselves as guinea pigs. The actual birth of the guinea pig club was, appropriately enough, on July 20th, 1941, a Sunday morning, after a night of heavy drinking. The drinking party, nothing new at East Grinstead, started innocently enough with someone suggesting, hey, let's have a grogging party. Those patients who were mobile enough made for a wooden hut next door, where the surgeons kept supplies and the pilots were accommodated. This hut, officially called Ward 3 at the back of the college hospital, together with McIndoe's operating theater, had been officially designated a maxilliofacial unit. Unofficially, the pilots called it the Sty. Once inside the hut, Frankie Trular, a Czech fighter pilot, offered to uncork a bottle of sherry. The rest quickly agreed, as Trular was the only one with hands capable enough to perform the task. The next day, that Sunday morning, the hungover pilots declared the night before a success and decided to form a drinking club. In over-serious tones, a meeting was called together and minutes were tabulated. At the top, the minutes read, The Maxillonian Club, whose members called themselves guinea pigs. Keeping the tongue-in-cheek atmosphere going, pilot officer Jeffrey Page, one of the least able to write due to his injuries, was chosen to take minutes. He listened and wrote the following. 
The objects of the club are to promote good fellowship among and to maintain contact with approved frequenters of Queen Victoria College Hospital. There are to be three classes of membership, all having equal rights. The guinea pigs, patients, the scientists, doctors, surgeons, and members of the medical staff, and three, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Guinea Pigs, those friends and benefactors who, by their interest in the hospital and patients, make the life of the guinea pig a happy one. There was to be an annual subscription paid the 1st of July each year. Women were not eligible for membership, but a ladies' evening may be held at the discretion of the committee. The following members were proposed and seconded by members present. President Mr. A. H. McIndoe, FRCS. Vice President, Squadron Leader T. Cleave. Secretary, Flight Officer W. Towers Perkins. And Treasurer, Pilot Officer P. C. Weeks. Then committee members were selected, other members were selected, and then some other members were proposed and seconded. It made sense to these men that the maestro, McIndoe, should be made president. And as vice president, squadron leader Tom Cleave was chosen. As a guinea pig, his credentials, unfortunately, were impeccable. Cleave had been leading an attack on a formation of JUAD bombers when suddenly his hurricane caught fire. He managed to undo his cockpit harness and take off his helmet. The fire continued to spread. He always flew with a pistol and decided a while ago to shoot himself if he ever got into this very situation. But as his hands and legs were already on fire, he was too weak to carry out his gruesome, determined course. Instead, he decided to turn the plane on its back, hoping to fall out. But before he could execute the roll, there was a loud explosion, and he was thrown from the plane. Tom awoke at the hospital at Orpington. He was lying under a bed, and this confused him at first. Turns out, there was a raid going on, and that was the best protection the staff could give him. A nurse, her name was Blossom, stayed with him through the night, holding him and giving him ice cubes to suck on every ten minutes. Later, when more bombs sounded, she put herself across his legs, protecting them, lest a section of the ceiling fall down. This nurse would be the first of many brave women in Tom's life. Days later, he slept through her first visit due to the sleeping potions given to him. He found out his wife, Beryl, had come by. After a few more days, she came by again. By this point, Cleve's hands, forehead, and legs were covered with Tanifax jelly. As she walked in, Tom saw her face tighten a bit, but she calmly said, What on earth have you been doing with yourself, darling? He responded, Had a row with the German. When he saw his face later, without the jelly covering it up, he saw what she must have previously seen, and he could only wonder at her bravery. Weeks later, after many nightmares while under medication for his pain and condition, a nurse told him during a night raid, where he was again under a bed for protection, that there was a new treatment for burns that did not involve tannic acid. Also, the doctor there specialized in skin grafting and plastic surgery. When McIndoe examined Cleve, he told him straight out, We can do either of two things with that nose of yours. We can graft a piece of skin onto it and give it some sort of covering, or we can give you a new nose. 
This latter method will be quite a big job, but well worth it. Tom chose option number two. What McIndoe was referring to was that Tom's accident during the Battle of Britain had practically burned away his nose, leaving two tiny holes closer to his eyes than before, due to his face slightly shriveling up under the fire. But when it was all done, McIndoe would take a patch of skin from Tom's forehead and use it to grow a new nose. Later, skin from Tom's thigh was used to repair his forehead. I believe last time that I mentioned that Bill Towers Perkins was chosen as secretary. This decision was made tongue-in-cheek as he could not write due to the conditions of his hands. But he was considered a good chap and met the minimum number of operations under McIndoe to be considered a guinea pig. Towers Perkins tangled with a group of JU-88s south of Tunbridge Wells on September 11, 1940. After being hit, he bailed out as soon as he could, but he was already wounded and had suffered burns. However, the selection of Peter Weeks as treasurer was probably the most ironic selection. Not knowing if his legs would ever work again, his appointment as treasurer was to ensure that he could not, quote-unquote, run off with the money. Equally ironic was when later, after the RAF Benevolent Fund was established, it helped Weeks, as it was supposed to, who did not want to go on living the rest of his life with limited use of his hands and legs. But other guinea pigs, including words from McIndoe, convinced him to carry on, despite all. One of the many things that McIndoe learned from his experience with these men is that we do well to remember that the privilege of dying for one's country is not equal to the privilege of living for it. Weeks took these words to heart. He survived being shot down on his Spitfire during the Battle of Britain, left the RAF in 1944, went back to St. Edmund's School, a school he attended and worked for them, and in 1952 became its leader. In another twist of fate, Derek Martin, another founding member, found his way to East Grinstead because of water instead of fire. At age 20, he was the skipper of a four-engine short Sunderland flying boat, and on March 14, 1941, he was ordered to look for a German sub south of Iceland. After 12 hours of flying, fatigue had set in, and the mist above the water affected his vision when he attempted to land. Suddenly, all was quiet, and Martin assumed he bought it. Instead, somehow, he ended up floating on the surface while most of his crew was dead. He himself was considered dead after being hauled aboard a boat, and a blanket was thrown over him. On the ride to Oban, his destination was West Highland Hospital. His wings, buttons, wallet, and gold watch were stolen. Once at the hospital, the staff there received credit for resuscitating this dead pilot. He was stabilized, and to the best of their ability, his scalp and face were placed back into position and stitched up. What Martin found out later was that his left eye had been hanging out of its socket, and his scalp was attached only by an inch of skin. Although his damage was not due to fire, McIndoe soon had him in War Three. Derek would return to operational flying and, after the war, would help many other guinea pigs as a committee member.
At the time of the creation of the club, it was only a small part of the singular zany world at East Grinstead, and that unorthodox world, or climate, was purposefully created by Mackendoe, his staff, and the pilots at East Grinstead. The men may have been wounded, but the very thing that made them want to be pilots was still with them in Ward 3. For his part, Mackendoe added to the singular environs by wanting only pretty nurses to administer to his men. His thinking was, if attractive ladies spent their days with these disfigured men, then their confidence would return. After all, Mackendoe was confident in his surgical abilities. What he was considering was the lives and feelings of self-worth of these men after the war. It worked, and the swagger of the men soon returned. And, over time, some of the nurses accepted marriage proposals from their former patients. And those pretty nurses did their part in taking their job seriously, all the while, making sure the men had access to barrels of beer in Ward 3. Again, there was method to Mackendoe's madness. The beer was well watered, and it was certainly an easier way in keeping the men hydrated. As for the residents of East Grinstead, they not only learned not to stare, but were soon taking the pilots into their homes as guests. This, again, was at the encouragement of Mackendoe. These pilots may have been through hell and back, but all that cared for them would make damn sure they were not ostracized from society for the rest of their lives. The guinea pig club was initially meant to better organize their drinking parties, but also to raise the spirits of any who came to Ward 3. But who could have guessed what would have become of it, or how many people it helped after the war? Certainly, Tom Cleave could not have imagined his position as vice president, taking on lightheartedly, would lead him to help these men in so many different ways after the war. Who knew that when Dr. McIndoe died in 1960, his place would be taken over by His Royal Highness Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. And something like this could never really have been planned out. In fact, the guinea pigs mocked the very notion. Years after the club was formed, some of the guinea pigs offered this up. We'll put the burned airmen in an uncomfortable wooden hut at the back of the Queen Victoria Cottage Hospital. There they will create an amazing spirit, bringing to it the spirit of the fighter squadrons. Then we'll get more and more burned airmen from the heavy bombers, among some of whom the morale may not be so high because they will not necessarily be the cream like these chaps. The spirit will have to be wafted through the hospital and everyone will get better much quicker as a result of our ingenious plan. Some may even return to the war and use again the killing skills which has cost the nation so much time and money to teach them. Meanwhile, just to help the chaps along, we'll recruit the prettiest nurses we can find for this very special hospital, and we'll put a fellow called Mackendoe in charge of the lot, because he seems not only pretty capable at carving up people, but also in understanding their minds. And it is every bit as important to understand people as to graft their skin when dealing with burn cases. Oh yes, one more very important point. We should find a hospital where the matron will be a thoroughly good sort, smile sweetly, and take Mr. McIndoe in her stride. She must welcome beer barrels in the wards, and will not have to mind when some of her patients return from London nightclubs in time for breakfast. The Cottage Hospital of East Grinstead, then, is entirely suitable, 
Matron Hall is a gem and has a talent for turning a blind eye. Ah, another point. Anesthesia for plastic surgery is a specialized branch of medicine, and like Mr. McIndoe, the anesthesiasts must be humanitarians. Team up Dr. John Hunter and Dr. Russell Davies. Finally, East Grinstead is a good healthy spot. Fresh, clean Sussex air, not too far from the night spots of London, so that we can keep the chaps cheered up. There are also the scented pine woods around. Mr. McIndoe says they contain healing properties. Better still for the guinea pigs. They enclose the homes of some of the nation's wealthiest people. McIndoe enjoys the social life, and he's just the man to persuade the rich to do the chaps well once they're on their crutches. A club, that's a top priority. Archibald McIndoe was 39 when World War II started. As a surgeon, he got started with a helping hand from Gillies, a distant cousin and fellow New Zealander. He studied at New Zealand's Otago Medical School, then got a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in the United States. With Gillies' help again, McIndoe became the clinical assistant in plastic surgery at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, Barts, in London. And his skills as a surgeon would only grow as he worked in Barts Chelsea Hospital, the Croydon General Hospital, and other places before joining Gillies' private practice. One day, McIndoe got a call from a Colonel Philippi. Philippi was wealthy, enjoyed, and expected all that came with rank and money. He came right to the point of his call. Mr. McIndoe, good. Now look here. I want you to provide a private room, a beautiful nurse, a vice-sprung mattress, and your personal attention four times a day for a friend called Smith Berry. Although McIndoe did not know who Robert Smithberry was, many who studied or lived through the Great War did. Smithberry was a famous pilot, and he developed a system of training pilots for the future. He balanced out classroom time with flying lessons, but used a dual-control plane. He also came up with the idea of using a rubber hose that carried his voice over the roar of the engine to the student's ear while flying. As his system was still being used to train new pilots, Smith Berry's reputation was even now strong in the flying community. Despite this, McIndoe didn't honestly feel that someone like Smith Berry deserved one of Ward's Three's beds. However, doing a favor for someone who deliberately dropped several ranks to once again serve in the RAF as a 54-year-old pilot officer, ferry pilot, could only help McIndoe's cause and his cause was his men. Smith Barry crashed in a Blemen bomber during the Battle of Britain and broke his jaw. He had been seen at two other hospitals, but wasn't happy with the results. When he heard about East Grinstead and the more relaxed atmosphere that seemed to increase and improve the healing of its patients, Smith Barry wanted in and wasn't used to hearing the word no. Meanwhile, McIndoe had done some checking and soon realized who Smithberry was. So, although he felt he had been bamboozled, he laid out the red carpet for his latest patient. Soon, Smithberry was a true guinea pig and seemed to benefit from the relaxed atmosphere. In appreciation and probably being an all-around good guy, Smithberry let McIndoe know that if he ever wanted to use his skin for grafting to help the lads, he was welcome to it. The boss had to gently let this potential donor know it didn't quite work like that. But if he really wanted to do the sty a favor, why not be a liaison between East Grinstead 
in the air ministry. Some of these men would be here for years as McIndoe, surgery by surgery, sculpted their faces and hands back to some sort of normalcy. He wanted to make sure the air ministry did not lose interest in these men or forget about them after the war. But Smith Berry let the maestro know that he was the last person the Stein needed representing them. He did not conjole or persuade as the job required. Robert Smith Berry only yelled. However, he then offered up a ray of light by suggesting that the man East Grinston needed was George Philippi, the man who talked to McIndoe on the phone. That call was rather terse, but later when they met, it was only minutes before Philippi had McIndoe purring like a content cat. The surgeon, remembering how persuasive the colonel was, quickly agreed. Smith Berry promised to get Philippi to take the job, and he did. Soon, Colonel George Philippi was in his office of the newly created P-5, a department that's purpose was to care for the welfare of the burned pilots. But he would need a liaison at the sty for day-to-day conversations, and McIndoe was simply too busy for that. But it didn't matter. Philippi had just the man. So this is where we'll pick up next time. Um, I wanted to throw this in because I didn't include it in the story, but it's just another example of the zaniness of the sty. Um, Any of the guinea pigs that went back into combat carried a card, and that card read, In case of further trouble, deliver the bits to Ward 3, East Grinstead. you got to love that. And in case you haven't run across it yet, here's the guinea pig anthem. We are McIndoe's Army. We are his guinea pigs, with dermatomes and bedicles, glass eyes, false teeth, and wigs. And when we get our discharge, we'll shout with all our might, per ardua ad astra, we'd rather drink than fight. John Hunter runs the gas works, Ross Tilly wields a knife, and if they are not careful, they'll have your flaming life. So, guinea pigs, stand steady for all your surgeon's calls, and if their hands aren't steady, they'll whip off both your ears. We've had some mad Australians, some French, some Czechs, some Poles. We've even had some Yankees. God bless their precious souls. While as for the Canadians, ah, that's a different thing. They couldn't stand our accent and built a separate wing. We are McIndoe's army. And finally, just to let you know, the guinea pigs still have their lost weekends every year. Um, at its peak, there were 649 guinea pigs, and I believe the number now, is, as far as the surviving uh, people, I think it's just over 100, and they still get together once a year. Um, I think in the last 12 or 13 years, they've been ending their lost weekends with a cheer. They all stand up and say in unison, to the last guinea pig. <laughs>